Hey, everyone. This is Chris Ryan from The Ringer. As many of you have heard by now, we lost a treasured colleague and friend over the weekend. Jonathan Charks passed away on Saturday. John was 34. He leaves behind a wife and a son, and we are obviously mourning his loss and sending all of our love to his family right now. If you go to theringer.com slash Jonathan Charks, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S, you will find a memorial page for John which has links to his GoFundMe that benefits his family and the amazing writing he did throughout his experience. I encourage you to go there. And if you can, please support the Charks family. Briefly, I will just say that John was among the first people that we hired to work for The Ringer. So he was instrumental in defining the voice and perspective of the site. He has as much to do with what this place is as anyone else. And throughout his experience with cancer, John communicated eloquently about the challenges he was facing, both through his writing and his podcasting. You could never stop John from talking about his passions. It's one of the things I loved about him. Over the last few months, you know, whenever we would talk, whenever I would reach out to see how he was doing, I would try to keep it very John-focused. And the next thing I knew, we would be talking about James Harden or Better Call Saul. He really loved this stuff. Uh, he loved talking about it, celebrating it, debating it, illuminating it. We're going to keep putting out our pods and writing while we grieve but we wanted to let folks know that John was in our hearts and that his family was in our thoughts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Talk the Thrones. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and I am joined by Ringer senior staff writer, Joanna Robinson. And the mayor of the Street of Silk, <laughs> Mallory Rubin. And we're here to talk about the fourth episode of House yeah. of the Dragon. It's called The King of the Narrow Sea. It's so wonderful to have, would you call it a family reunion here today, guys? Hmm. Yeah. A, ple yeah. a pleasant Targ gathering. Classic. Yeah. Coming together. <laughs> we share family. everything here <laughs> on Doctor yeah. Thrones. So that was an episode of TV. And I'm going to ask you just straight off the bat, we could start with you, Mal. Of of the many, many things, what was the most fucked up thing that happened in that episode of House of the Dragon? Let me say that this was my favorite episode of the season. <laughs> I Same. loved it. Same. <laughs> Let's start there. What was the most fucked up thing that happened this episode? I think that you are supposed to say, or you might be expecting me to say, Damon Targaryen trying to fuck his niece in public in a pleasure house. I got to be honest. I'm not sure that cracks my top five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I think the final four for, for me would be a ancient man from House Dondarrion and a young boy from House Blackwood back-to-back -back proposing to Rhaenyra. House of the Dragon, Hot D on a three-episode streak of involving children and marriage plots. Also, Lord Dondarrion, the deep, dry moat line. I don't think that's going to get it done. Next contender would be Alicent. <laughs> oh, God. Needing to give Viserys a sponge bath to gently dab his sores while yeah. he guzzles uh -huh. wine in the tub. Uh -huh. My next contender would be the harrowing, haunting Viserys Alicent sex scene. And then I think my next pick in my final four here would be Alicent's judgment against Rhaenyra, the real disgust in her eyes at the prospect of Rhaenyra sullying her virtue. Those are my top four. What about you guys? <laughs> Joe, what about you? Anything outside of Mallory's uh, four contenders there? I think the cherry on the top of 
the royal marriage bed, which was my number one, uh, would be the like the rat from the depart the end of the departed that like scurries across the top of the four poster. <laughs> yeah. um, just real, real fine, fine night for Allison High Tower. How about you, Chris? I think probably the overhead shot of Viserys's sore co- covered back. Yeah, as he as he performed his marital duties with his young wife was probably the moment where I was like, is this really where I've arrived in my life? That this is what I'm doing, you know? Deeply miserable, (laughs) unhappy wife. Yes. Um, We can go through the episode itself. This was uh, a very, I I wouldn't say claustrophobic, but in previous episodes, we've either had a set piece or an adventure out into the woods. This was largely taking place within the walls of, of, of King's Landing itself. You know, there was a, obviously a great escape out of the castle and into uh, what was that district called again? Is that the circus district? <laughs> what was happening? That, I mean, it's obviously like a place that where the like theater Bourbon arts. Bourbon Street, yeah. Bourbon Street to me on Mardi Gras, right? <laughs> <It was> exactly, <laughs> just where anything the heart desires is available: drama, theater, uh, you know, sample plates for some of the food stalls, and then any sexual perversion you wanted to explore, you could do that in the neighborhood that Rhaenyra escapes to. I'll just go through the episode itself. So this is the fourth episode. It's called uh, The King of the Narrow Sea. That's in reference to what Damon has been crowned after his victory over the crab feeder, but I'll get to that. So it opens up with Rhaenyra on kind of a Westerosi version of The Bachelorette, which Mallory referred to. And it would be funny if it wasn't so dehumanizing for Rhaenyra and, and honestly fatal for a lot of her suitors who are clashing while online to, you know, give their give their spiel about why they deserve to be Rhaenyra's husband. Uh, she bails on this dating game early uh, with Sir Kristen, humiliating all the dudes and her father who are trying to pair her off with, uh, you know, for political benefit to various families, but ultimately to the Targaryens. She gets back in King's Landing just in time as Damon shows up wearing a crown of wood or kind of looks like a crown of thorns. And this is a party foul because you're not supposed to be wearing a crown when you when you address the real king. But after hearing about <laughs> Damon's conquest in the Stepstones, Viserys daps up his brother and is just like, you're back. You're back on my cool book, you know? And at a party later on, Rhaenyra and Damon talk in Valerian about the joys and pains of marriage. Viserys hears from Otto that Corlys is going to marry off his daughter to the guy who runs Bravos, which would create a serious like financial, military, and politically like you know, a family worth reckoning with if that were to happen. There is an increased urgency around marrying off Rhaenyra, which is interesting because that night she goes out to what I would to have what I would call, uh, I guess the British call a hen do. Is that what that is? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's her and Damon, uh, Street of Silk, Pleasure House. I you know some some great like food offerings and then basically a tapestry to borrow a phrase used in in this show episode itself, of sexual pleasure. And it's just like, really just like uh, an absolute mural of flesh. Yeah. Everybody's going at each other. <laughs> yeah. Guys, girls, whatever, family members, old, young. It's, it's just like, honestly, the czar of the telestrator couldn't even diagram the things that were happening <laughs> in that pleasure house. But what does happen... Uh, mm-hmm. Is Damon and Rhaenyra, they just get swept up in the moment. And despite <laughs> yeah. the fact that he <laughs> is her uncle, 
Uh-huh. And she is quite young. They start doing, like, it starts with a little bit of the air kissing, you know what I mean? Which is pretty illicit. And then there's some stuff happening below the belt line that we're going to have to really talk about because I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what happens. Yeah. Uh-huh. We'll get to it. Okay. Going frame by frame? Yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> Maybe. Play uh, by play. Rhaenyra, after Damon, we have Damon's kind of like either his senses come to him or he fails to perform. Rhaenyra deuces out on that situation, goes home, and immediately sleeps with Sir Kristen to seal the night off. Mm-hmm. While all this is happening, we get a very <laughs> cool scene of Viserys and Alicent <laughs> making more airs together that made me die a little bit on the inside. <laughs> Turns out Otto's got some little birds on the street. So he tells Viserys that the word around the schoolyard is that Rhaenyra has defiled herself with Damon. Viserys gets mad at everyone over this, including Otto, Rhaenyra, and Damon. Allison, who had been snooping on this situation, snooping seeming to run in the Hightower family, confronts Rhaenyra on the Damon stuff, and she basically lies on her dead mother's name, this was saying tough. that she did not <laughs> hook up with Damon. I guess. Actually, we should amend our most fucked up thing from the episode. Yeah, swearing on your dead mom that you didn't hook up with your uncle. <laughs> Very is rough. Coming in number up. five. Despite her protests, Field <laughs> is very pissed and essentially marries her off to Corliss's son, but not before he uh, stops to do a little show and tell with a dagger and and tells her about how there's a prince who was promised, and that's the secret that we're guarding. And we gotta get ready for the Song of Ice and Fire, season seven, Game of Thrones. A lot of people have thoughts on it, but you know, yeah. like he was that, like, "Have you seen Rise of Skywalker? Are you exactly. familiar with daggers that have yeah. detailed have descriptions?" You, have you logged and- into Reddit recently? Like, uh, anyway, so she understands or gets an even greater understanding of what the sort of Targaryen family responsibility is. That's greater than any kind of sitting on a throne or having a crown or running, you know, a kingdom. It's really about this oncoming future evil that they have to combat with the prince who was promised. Uh, leading the way, she gets what she wants. Oh, so Rhaenyra agrees to to this proposed union, but her price for this is that Otto has to go because she's like, this guy has been messing around for too long. He's he's moving against you politically. He's got you marrying his daughter. He's telling you that I'm uh, I'm I'm trouble. We got to get rid of this guy. So she's like, I'll marry Corliss's kid, but you got to get rid of Otto. He goes through with it. He also goes through with having his maester bring her a cup of abortion tea at the uh, the end of the episode, which is just like, again, an- like number seven of the fucked up things that happen. Um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about the ending of this episode, the, the, the dagger scene, because this was something that I obviously noted y- y- both of you reacted to quite passionately in the first episode. When when Viserys talks to Rhaenyra for the first time about the dream and and what like the Targaryens are actually responsible for was for me a novice when it comes to this stuff. And Joe, we can start with you here. Was this a huge revelation to hear the prince who was promised be uttered on this show, or is this just a continuation of the of the song that Viserys has been singing since the first episode? <laughs> It feels like a continuation of that of that first episode song, but the fact that it is literally written on the dagger is truly wild to me. The, like this answers a couple questions for us about like how the song was passed down through the generations. Like if people 
If if some kings died without passing it down, did their heirs remember to shove the dagger, the you know, the family heirloom in the fire and reveal the writing there? But I have follow-up questions for that. Like, did Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, who had that dagger for a while, never think think to shove it in the fire? Like, I feel like I feel like that's something he would always be checking for. Well, has Peter ink. Baelish ever seen Lord of the Rings? <laughs> <laughs> seen the One Ring cast into the flames to reveal the inscription? A lot of this comes down to what other pieces of nerd culture the characters yeah. in this show are familiar with. It's a great point. But the fact that he's literally inscribed on the knife that then will kill the Night King in the future when Arya wields it is, is of course, interesting. But I think for this show, um, what's really interesting is this conversation, But what it boils down to when he says, you know, there's something more important than your desires, Rhaenyra, right, is this idea of duty, which uh, Mallory likes to talk about a lot. There's the, <laughs> Mallory loves this talk of like duty versus love and what do you choose in the world of Westeros. Love is the death and, of duty. And I, and when she brought that up before we started watching this season, I was like, well, we're not going to get a lot of talk about duty from the fucking Targaryens. Like the Targaryens <laughs> don't care about duty. That's a stark concept. It's not a Targaryen concept, but this idea of the realm, which is like what Varys would talk about all the time. Like what do we owe right. The people that we rule. And this comes up in this very episode when yes. they're on the street watching a mummer's farce, uh, Chris's favorite <laughs> Chris's thing. This is mummer's. And Rhaenyra tries to chime in and she's like, lies, Leonard. And Damon's like, it matters what the small folk think. Like, their opinion matters. And she's like, no, it doesn't. And so her disconnect from the fact that to be queen means you have a responsibility to the kingdom and all these people out here are your responsibility. It's not just an inside the king, uh, like the keep power play. That that all sort of came bubbling in the surface of this episode, right, Mal? Like, what do you think? I'm currently thinking about how Rhaenyra sounds like Saw Gerrera shouting lies deception. So I'm just going to keep referencing other stories instead of talking Great. about this one, I guess. <laughs> um, I was really, I was really, we've talked in each pod about the time frame. And one of the spots that I found myself thinking most about the passage of time was this sequence, because it's really notable to me that the premiere concludes with this massive reveal from Viserys to Rhaenyra, which is a huge canon download, but also more so even than naming her heir, the thing that cements that the, the trust and the choice and how, how real that is to him, how serious he is about it in that moment that he is passing down that information to her, the burden of their rule. He then waits four and a half years to show her this, to take the next step. And I think that is so emblematic of his failure and like deeply rooted struggle as a father or limitation, maybe as a father, as a mentor, as a king. He always talks about the necessity, the burden that he carries, the weight that they shoulder, the things that he needs her to be thinking about instead of just her own desire, as you mentioned that quote, Joe. But he rarely takes the time to explain how, to show her what that looks like tangibly. This should have been the next day for them. I'm glad I to find see. This shocking. <laughs> I'm glad to see she's finally graduated from cupbearer to having like an actual seat, a seat at the table of the small council. Oh yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, but I think Chris for like what's also true. I love what you said there, Mal, and I think what's also true if we think about this as a succession story. Yes. The question of who has what information going forward, like the Mummer's Farce lays it out for us that like, you know, we've got Aegon, the the baby, 
Rhaenyra and Damon are these sort of like contenders for the throne. Who knows what going forward? Which of the Roy kids on succession has some sort of like secret intel on Waystar Royquo that like might be important going forward? So that's going to be interesting to think about who knows what as we figure out who should sit their butt on that big chair. To, to that point, I was pretty struck by the fact that the Kingsguard is bringing Rhaenyra into his chambers Kristen and another member of the Kingsguard are right there at the open door and Rhaenyra walks right up to the fire and the blade. Like, this is in plain sight. This is multiple people in this moment can see that there. And not that they're there to hear the prince that was promised line and the subsequent discussion, but people who are paying attention, and especially in an episode where the little birds are brought in and Masaria's role is the white where, worm. Where Allison is just like, I'm behind this changing. T- yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, like uh, we're we're meant to think in this episode about who is observing, hearing, mm. seeing what, and the fact that that was just out in plain sight really stood out to me. <laughs> you know, Harris needs to be a little either needs to be a little more careful with this thing he thinks is this preciously guarded secret, or just tell everyone. You two don't regularly roast your carving knife. Like that's not <laughs> just you know cleaning it. Maybe maybe he'll 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 be able to tell them. Yeah, I'm just using this to cauterize my most recent uh, sword. <laughs> You know? I wanted to. I guess the reason why I wanted to ask you, you know, Andy and I just yeah. had this discussion for the watch on, uh, uh, for tonight, where Game of Thrones, the show, early on introduced this idea that winter was coming. That for all of the like political, who's gonna, you know, Ned and Cersei and you know Bur- Robert Baratheon and all the stuff that was happening in that first season. Very early on, they gave us a glimpse of this existential threat that these people would eventually face. And in some ways that was the, it wasn't the only story engine, but it was the overstory engine. Like eventually this is coming. Eventually we can, we can always check in on this every couple of episodes and be like, is winter here? Is winter going to be long? What are we going to do when winter comes? What does that mean? And house of the dragon probably like in, at least in terms of its text does not have something like that, right? Like it doesn't have, a near supernatural kind of uh, threat facing these characters necessarily that I know of based on what we have seen so far. And that's in, I thought it was interesting that they have now returned to this idea that something governs who becomes king or queen and what they do with that power beyond just like, how can we, in Damon's words, purify the Targaryen bloodline and restore it to its like glory that like that's what Damon ultimately wants to do even though he's probably also weirdly into his niece so I I was I wanted to throw that out and ask the two of you to the extent that you're capable of answering that without giving away like well this is what's going to happen in this show like whether or not you feel like this is the showrunners bringing in something that's like here's just a little seasoning to make this feel bigger than just Targaryen civil war I mean, I think it achieves that. I think it's doing a couple things. First of all, I guess this is, you know, we talked about this before, I think in episode one, but this is something that George R. R. Martin came up with, this idea yeah. that like this traces back to Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, it's nowhere in the text that we've read. And so it's like sent all the book readers in this huge, you know, downward spiral of who knew what when and like, how does this explain how various Targaryens reacted whenever winter came? They're like, winter's right. here. Is this the winter? Like, is this the one? So, uh, <laughs> you know, keeping our eyes on winter. But I think to your point, it 
it gives more connective tissue to the original series, which is obviously something HBO wants. They want this to feel like a show that is both new yet familiar. And this is a, a major way to do that. I think it also connects to that larger through line of portents, signs, signs, portents, the dreams, the prophecies. And Joe made... Uh, a, a really wonderful observation. I believe this was on our episode two House of Our Deep Dive, though. Don't quote me on that because I can't remember which pod is which anymore. <laughs> but Joe spoke so beautifully about this larger idea of Targaryen madness and the weight that this information would have on each of these rulers and the, how interesting that will be to track across oh, this yeah. show and this story. Like, what does this do to people Is once this they what know? drives the Mad King mad? Right. Exactly. And, like, we're watching in real time the, the, the weight that this is inflicting on Viserys, a character who is already so inclined to put stock into his own dream. This this idea that we heard him discuss with Alicent by the bonfire, that pop and bonfire in episode three about the power of prophecy compared to the power of dragons and the way that he so desperately wanted to be a dreamer. He is really inclined to believe that this is the most serious thing in his life and in the world. What does that do to a person? How does that influence the decisions they make and the way they treat the other people in their lives and the expectations that they hold for their children or anyone else around them? And I think that that will then continue to be true for anyone who receives that information. So Joe called that out early and I think it's really going to be central to the entire story that we're watching. The larger quote about Targaryen madness is that Targaryen, when a Targaryen is born, a coin flips. One side is greatness, the other side is madness. So it's sort of like, what will this do to you? Will it drive you to greatness or will it drive you to madness? This big, huge, burdensome knowledge that you have. And she's already talked, she talks about it both in kind of like a dark way at the, at the mummer's farce that she's at this week where she's just like, I don't give a shit what these people think of me. Like if I want to, I'll just ignite them. Yeah. Alarming. And and in other situations, (laughs) mostly related to, I think, you know, the treatment of women in in the world that she's in. She's just kind of like, I don't really feel like we need to adhere to the old ways of doing things or what tradition is said. And we know that eventually a Targaryen will want to smash the wheel. And like that, that is something that runs through. So I'm, I'm also kind of curious about how it plays out in terms of Targaryen traditionalists or tra- Targaryen reformers, you know, <laughs> because sometimes, uh, sometimes the latter is actually not great. Sometimes the latter can be a reformer, but winds up lighting everything on fire in their wake. Well, it's all connected, right? Because if you think that you're reforming in pursuit of saving the world, then you'll stop at nothing to achieve right. that. Now, Danny, from everything we know, did not ever receive this information. This, as far as we can tell so far, and we'll maybe we'll learn more dies with Rhaegar. That's our assumption at the moment. But even so, more broadly for these other characters in this slice of history, I think this also connects to this other this other through line we've been discussing a lot, which was also really present in this episode, this idea of loneliness. I yeah. imagine even dragons get lonely, as Viserys says. We've we've mentioned on many pods the, the Aemon idea about, about Daenerys, a, a Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing. The loneliness of this knowledge is a specific thing for Viserys, is a specific thing for Rhaenyra. But even though it is so particular to them, it is something that connects them to Damon, to Alicent, characters who are also defined by feeling utterly, Lonely. utterly isolated from the people yeah. that they would seek to be close to. I have a cure for loneliness. Uh, is it is sex? It, <laughs> is it a field trip to the Street of Silk with your uncle? It's throwing on <laughs> some Barney sweatshirt. 
<laughs> and a beanie. A slouch beanie. It's got to be a slouch beanie. And going out with your uncle. <laughs> this was an incredible outfit. Seriously. Getting in your cups. <laughs> I have this outfit. <laughs> and then going down to three submit basements in a, like a nightclub in New York City in the early 80s and finding out just what you're into. Oh so let's God. just talk about that scene because... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, there, I mean, like, there was a lot that happened in this episode, but they made the choice to make this the centerpiece. Some, some episodes, yeah, you said earlier there was no set piece. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I guess I, <laughs> I, I, I stand corrected. This was the set piece of the episode, it was this sexual ballet extravaganza. Oh, extravaganza. Mm. Yeah. I, like I, liked, I liked flesh mural, which is what you went with. <laughs> flesh earlier. mural. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of things. Either one of you answer any of these things to me. I'm just going to point out some observations, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, let's just go before the pleasure house. I think Damon flying over the boat mm. and and buzzing the tower, so to speak, in the yeah. earlier scene. Real maverick energy there, yeah. There's a little bit of... That That feels like a little bit more of, more of a loaded gesture after, after we see what happens in the rest of the episode, yeah. correct? Yeah, a little uh, just the tip foreshadowing oh jesus no <laughs> for me <Yes>. joe <laughs> for me i thought uh, an important moment there is how like genuinely and like tenderly concerned Kristen cole seemed yes. to be for yeah. rhaenyra yes yeah, he's a good guy. um you know like yeah. to go from the unpredictability of damon to the yeah. safe nurturing the embrace arms of, of yeah, Kristen cole. cole um all right so when we get into into the pleasure zone I, I guess I just want to ask Wait, this. Are what? you saying pleasure zone because you said buzz the tower and you have danger zone in your head right now? Should we <laughs> do like a little like, remix right running here? running out of ways to say. Highway <laughs> to the pleasure zone. I was just thinking of the auto zone. Anyway, let's talk about the pleasure zone. I guess I'm going to ask this question on a podcast. Damon yeah. couldn't perform because he chronically fails to do so or because the little voice inside his head told him not to have sex with his niece. I think this is going to be the rift that drives House of R apart, that tears us apart. Because oh. I think it was more than just a performance issue for Damon. I think yes. there's something. Yeah. Okay, never mind. We agree. Never mind. I thought, <laughs> yeah. I thought Mallory, <laughs> given the barrage of texts we've gotten from Mallory on this issue, I thought she was going to come down firmly on it was a performance issue. But. So the read that we have is that they're getting after it. It's getting hotter and hotter and steamier and steamier. He then all of a sudden stops kissing her and is like, I can't, we can't. But she's also like, you definitely want to though, right? Right. Like, like I'm trying to like read the, the choreography here. I, it's really interesting that this is what I'm discussing. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 but right keep right. going. Yeah, keep giving us But I think it's worth play. noting because it's like, what are his designs on her? And like, what's the purpose of this? Like they obviously have chemistry. Ever since he first got here when she was 14, gross, but, but, Definitely in this episode, he's looking at her like a cat looks like a bull crate. Yeah. Like that is something that he has been doing. Okay. On the bridge at Dragonstone, they have its sparks are flying. Sparks aplenty. Uh, uh, another question to ask, uh, and you might ask it, Chris, is like, you know, about how much of this is a calculated political play for Damon to put Rhaenyra in a position to compromise her so much that Viserys is forced to marry her off to Damon and then Damon gets to be king anyway. Um, which, you know, we get that conversation with Viserys later. I think all of those ingredients are in the mix and it's what makes Damon such an interesting character because I think that move that he makes right before they start to go at it where he pulls the slouch beanie off. Yes. To make it so that... Her. 
everyone knows who this is down there. That seems like the part of Damon that's like, I'm going to compromise her and then I'm going to get what I want. I was almost bummed out that Otto had such an obvious, like the kid hanging outside because it would have been really funny if someone was like, Otto, Otto, I I saw the the princess at a pleasure house and people were like, well, were you at the pleasure house? And the guy would be like, uh... Oh God! But I mean, that's the thing, and that's what Viserys and and da- like Viserys says. So what? When Otto's like, "You're, you're the princess is at the pleasure house," he's like, "So what?" And then I love how you were making Chris do the play by play, much the way that Viserys is like, "You got to say it, Otto. If you're gonna yeah. walk into my room one, and accuse my daughter of something, scenes. <laughs> you got to do the whole thing." But he's Speak like, it so, plainly. Yeah. yeah, he's like, "So what if she was there?" And then he's like, "Well." She was, you know, fucking her uncle publicly. That's a bummer. Um, but so I guess the rules are she can go yeah. and observe. And there were many like well-dressed lords there. So it's like it's not a problem to be in the pleasure house. It's a problem as a royal woman to lose your virginity before the political marriage yeah. that you're supposed to have. So, Mal, right. any comments on Damon's performance anxiety? <laughs> many, uh, most of which I'm afraid to make on a podcast. I think you two summed it up well. I thought that the disguise, the flimsy nature of the disguise was notable to me as well. Even okay. before he removes the the beanie because we have this moment where Rhaenyra fleeing from the <laughs> flaming Hot Cheeto <laughs> vendor <purveyor>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> runs into a member of the Gold Cloaks who recognizes her immediately. Like, it's no secret that they will be recognizable. These are two of the most recognizable people in the entire world. Damon himself, whether he actually said air for a day, is not relevant. I mean, it is more broadly, but in this sense is not. What's relevant is that his exploits in pleasure houses make their way back into the Red Keep, and he knows that. And so he brought her into that situation knowing that. I think that is true. I also think it's true, as you said, that they have genuine passion for each other. These are people who are drawn to each other magnetically. The way when she is on the on the marriage tour, receiving all of these suitors she has no interest in, what is she doing? She's holding the necklace that he gave her. When he walks in, fresh haircut, shiny armor, grayscale riddled crap feeder hammer in his hand. She is looking at him with lust in her eyes. And he looks at her with much the same expression in the godswood later. So they are drawn to each other. You can feel that magnetism in that sequence. The exact play-by-play of what is unfolding with the removing of the hat, the kissing, pinning against the wall. I have such detailed notes on this scene. You would not believe it. Save it for the deep dive. Deep dive for that. Fear not. Taking off her, opening her shirt, taking down her pants, turns around on the wall, then she turns back to kiss him and that's when he pulls away. And I think it is a mixture of... Do you think we could put the the old uh, BS report warning at the top of House of R this week where it's like, this is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature topic. That's a good idea. It's a good idea. You know, we did see him in episode one under what Joe and I have subsequently taken to calling his his cloak of shame. So he has he has had some performance issues before, and that's okay. It happens. Yeah. Nothing no, I, to be I'm ashamed only pointing of. Pointing it out because it seems like an issue for him, and that's that's you know 
I would say that Damon is a character riddled by desire or driven by desire, but riddled by self-doubt. And I think that the subs- this scene embodies a lot of that, but so does his subsequent conversation with Viserys in the throne room later. After talking with you two, I am convinced that his ultimate goal like, is I knew if I did this, we would get caught because I was going to expose us and that this is what Viserys would say and that this is the only way I could reveal to him like what the choice should be, which is to marry me off to her and create the super Targaryen. The thing he says in the book, which is even a little tougher than what he says uh, in the sh- in this episode, he Impossible. says, give the girl to me to wife. Who else would take her now? That's what he says to Viserys. Oh. But I think it's a little what bit a piece more complicated. shit, Dame. Come on, but, man. But I think it's more complicated than that, right? Mallory, yes. hit it. All of that is, is there. Yeah. And true. It's, and hard yes. to ignore. But... I couldn't stop thinking about the conversation that Damon and Rhaenyra had after the welcome home party. <laughs> Godswood, what a location for for that little shindig. They're getting they're getting as much use out of that weirwood tree as they can. They're like, what can we set under this tree? Yeah. One of the things that Damon says to Rhaenyra, and that is a really, really rich and intriguing conversation where Rhaenyra reveals and shares a lot about how she feels about marriage and childbirth and all of these very real things that are weighing on her deeply and that she is rebelling against. And one of the things that Damon says to her is, you cannot live your life in fear or you will forsake the best parts of it. And I think that that is as central to his character and as central to what is unfolding here as the ambition and any sort of scheming or striving because he's like a very spirited person and it's a lot of this second son little Mm. brother energy where so much of his life has been defined by needing to prove his worth and trying to earn other people's affection and doing the things that makes him happy. The way that he says like fucking is a pleasure that's a person who means that and spends a lot of his time living inside of that idea. And I think that that's the thing that he wants Rhaenyra to embrace and really experience too. But more than one thing can be true at once. That's why he's an interesting character. Uh, in the previous episode, Otto tries to marry off Rhaenyra to a two-year-old. He suggests mm, yeah. that they do that. Mm-hmm. So my question uh-huh. to you, Joe, is yeah. how scandalous would it be if Damon was just like a suitor and that there wasn't the added component component of did Damon take her virginity? I think, so if we're ranking like the scandals here, the options, yeah. I think that Damon, if Damon didn't have already have a wife, um, and wanted to marry his niece, Rhaenyra. That, the, that the wife, is, the, Damon's first wife. Is, <laughs> she's a real problem, right? Yeah. But um, yeah. but uh, if he wanted to marry Rhaenyra, that's super normal. Like, could uh, okay. not be more normal in House Targaryen, right? Right, Mallory? I'm, I'm not wrong about Positively this. Positively tame. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether that had societally been starting to age out a little bit, but I the guess The Targaryens not. are still marrying, like, siblings to siblings. Like, it's okay. totally fine. No prob. The question of Sir Kristen and Damon, like pre-marriage, mm-hmm. um, I think either, I think in terms of marriage, in terms of your wish last week, Chris, uh, Chris of like, can can she marry good old Chris and Cole? That's way more scandalous than marrying her uncle, is, thought, is okay, marrying, sure. uh, you know, someone of lower station on the King's Guard, et cetera. So like, 
if premarital sex is off the table and it's not, it's on the table, it's on the, in yeah. the pleasure palace on, you know, whatever. But like yeah. when you say it's on the table, you mean like it's on the painted table. Or I do. Any uh, other surface yeah, that they can any find. Other yeah. Orgy tapestry you could possibly find. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, like that's, that's that. I mean, and I don't know what I am genuinely, like, we're recording this a little early. I'm really curious to see what happens with the discourse. We're not here to talk about the discourse, but I don't know how, how clutch the pearls are going to be. This is something that we've been trying to like ready people for. This is a Targaryen show. Like incest yeah. is everywhere. You know, I thought I thought everybody was going to lose it after the first episode with the the jousting dying childbirth montage, and and people seem to to roll with it. So, what's a night at the pleasure house with your uncle? You know, I guess the question, like, if you want to relate this to Jamie and Cersei, and like how people felt about that and that show versus this show, like that was presented as shameful. And this incest, Targaryen incest is supposed to be pretty like normalized at this time. And there's also the age gap and it doesn't like, I'm not clutching pearls necessarily, but I feel like people are going to want to talk about how Damon is essentially groomed Rhaenyra, which is not, not true. You I'm know? sure it will come up. Yeah. So I don't know. The, the truth is, is they they do not do the deed. Right. right. So Rhaenyra coming back and she's probably thinking to herself, uh, you know, well, I'm going to just deny everything until I'm like, because ultimately at the end of the day, this is hearsay. Why does she go so far as to swear on her mother, her dead mother, that nothing happened to Allison? Were you surprised when it happened when she said that? Like, I'm not surprised that she doesn't trust Allison. Like, after everything that's happened, like, they, you know, at the start of the episode, you're seeing these women, like, come back together in a way yeah. that's very, like, hopeful, uh, opening up to each other, grabbing each other's hands, talking about how they missed each other. And so you're like, okay, are we moving back to, okay, we're going to run off on a dragon and eat cake together? Like, let's do it, ladies. And then this happens, and I was watching, yeah, going, why, are, why, Rhaenyra, why are you, like, I really, f I feel like. My read on Allison in this episode is that if Rhaenyra had told her the truth, Allison would have helped her and protected her. But I can understand why Rhaenyra would feel that that was not the case. I feel like Allison came at her with real judgment. horror in her eyes and judgment yeah. in her words and on her Wasn't face. Good. And yeah. we have a lot of shots in this episode of Allison, you know, gazing out at the sept. I think there's a lot of real tragic stuff happening with Allison in this episode. And I have a lot of, of sympathy for her. But inside of specifically that scene with Rhaenyra, it, I think that Rhaenyra sensed that this was not something that Allison would ap approve of or understand. And like even even in that bench sequence at the uh, earlier in the episode at the at that party where there is this tenderness and sort of rediscovered affection between them that we can assume at least is the first time they've experienced anything like that with each other for years based on where we saw them last episode, right? Yeah, yeah. But even inside of that, there is such a tension point over this idea of, you know, being made to produce heirs. And, and Rhaenyra is saying that with, with such disdain. And of course, that is Alicent's circumstance. And we see that play out on her face in real time to the point where Rhaenyra even like grabs her hand and she apologizes, apologizes and says she's yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that one of the most compelling parts of this episode in terms of really reinforcing this theme and this idea was this cutting between, because you have the contrast of what happens with Rhaenyra and Damon and then Rhaenyra and Kristen, which I also think is interesting and notable in terms of the, 
very raucous, public, uh, sensory overload nature of the daemon scene and the very intimate, personal, quiet, private Kristen sequence, the way he folds and looks at his white cloak. Like, it's not just undre- you're not just undressing a person. He's take, uh, uncloaking his vows. But we are cutting between Alicent. We see her, that, that conversation on the bench. We see the look on her face as she is rocking their new child, Helena, the baby who won't stop crying. She is drinking a, a potion before bed. I presumed that was a, a, sleeping, a sleeping potion of some sort. She looks miserable and deeply lonely throughout this entire episode. The, the bathing sequence, she's summoned to Viserys' chambers and our, the camera is above, so we see these sores on his back, but also this vacant expression in her eyes. And I was wondering if that shot was because like Patty wasn't there that day, so they needed like a back, <laughs> a back double. Like, I actually also like- wondered that if for like everyone's comfort or whatever, but like also, I mean, to your point, Mal, like that angle makes her look so pinned down. Oh yeah. So I agree with all of that. I think you're dead on about all of that, especially like when she, when she's jiggling Helena on her hip, the, the wall, the, the window looks like a cage, like looks absolutely like a cage. It's like she's trapped and she's feeling trapped. I still feel, I don't, I'm like, I'm curious what you think, Chris, like I still feel like, Yes, Alicent is judging her and would judge her and wouldn't understand. She wouldn't be like, that's fine that you went out with Damon. But I think if if Rhaenyra was like, I don't know, I was confused. I got swept up in the moment, like something like that. I don't think Alicent would run to her father. I don't think that's what she would do well, it in, kinda, this, in this moment. This is the interesting thing with what they're trying to do on this show with like the time span. So one of the fascinating things that happens to you as you age out of childhood and into adulthood is how you define yourself. And is Allison defining herself as Viserys' wife, as Rhaenyra's friend, as Otto's daughter? You know, is she, is she defining herself as the queen? You know, as the mother of the would-be possible heir of the, of the throne? You know, like, there are so many different questions of identity that go into, especially this point in people's lives, even if in such a fucked up world as as Game of Thrones, like, still, you're like, huh, like, do I think of myself as this or do I think of myself as that? So, Joe, I take your point. Like, if Rhaenyra had been like, honestly, like, I got kind of hammered and like, next thing I knew, I was in this crazy place and, you know, within my family, it's not out of the question for for the stuff like this to happen, but like, I'm glad I didn't do it. I don't know. I mean, would she have been more scandalized if she had been like, and then I came home and immediately lost my virginity to Sir Kristen? Like, how far could the truth go there, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what... So I agree, Joe. I don't think she would have just run off and, and tattled and, and spread the, the, the reveal around. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. To me, what I guess feels more germane than that hypothetical is the fact that we don't get to see because Rhaenyra doesn't feel like this is a person she can tell the truth yeah. to anymore. And, yeah. you know, we hear Allison say, Chris, to that point of how do you think about yourself and who you are and who, who you've become? I think this is something that Allison is tormented by right now. And it's really devastating because she says, when she's telling Rhaenyra that she's glad she's home, she says, I find I have few friends lately. I like to believe I'm the Lady Allison, but all anyone sees when they look at me now is the queen. And again, so if you think about those cutting scenes in that contrast where she's trying to tell Rhaenyra Rhaenyra earlier, like, oh, what misery, all of these men vying for your favor. And Rhaenyra was <laughs> saying, to me, that is misery because this is not what I want. I don't want to be a pawn in someone else's political game. And Allison's like, I, 
I didn't have a choice at all, right? Yeah, at and least so you she have is at some choice. Yeah. yeah. Pain, well, but 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 to Rhaenyra, that's not that's like small progress or no progress at all because the reality is she feels trapped in her life just as Allison does. And I think that's one of the tragic things unfolding here is that actually both of these women are trapped by their circumstance and will will they be able to live in that truth together or will it drive them apart? And so Rhaenyra, just for that night, gets to not only experience freedom, and we hear her literalize that and say that, like, I just want, I don't want to think about my, the, the, the burdens of my inheritance for tonight. I just want to, I want to have fun. I want to be free. That freedom, but also that pleasure. And you can see her in real time, both with Damon and then with Kristen, like coming alive in her own body and really like experiencing what it, what it means to grow up and be a woman and feel that spark with somebody else. And that's not something that is a part of Allison's life. And that's like devastating. So I thought that was all really effective and, and well done. And obviously it's a scandalous and salacious episode, but I thought it was like a, pr- a pretty thematically powerful one too. I, I want to circle back though to Chris's, I think Chris's, I think you're right, Mallory. And I think Chris's question is really key here of like, how does Allison define herself? Because I think it's so interesting that the show wants us and wants Allison to ask that question of herself in a way that the book decided it did not have space for. And that's what is like the benefit of spending these few episodes with these younger actresses in this role, because like this time for Allison especially is something we don't have any context for in the books. And so I really appreciate that this show is deepening the interior lives of these young women on the road to what's going to come next. Um, It's so much more nuanced and so much more, you know, with love and respect to George, he was trying to write a fast, jaunty little history and actually finish a book. Like it's just so much more time and complexity to a character. What I love about someone like Allison at this point is like, we've seen her last week. I think, I think Chris noted this last week, like play the game. She can play it. She can steer Viserys in a certain direction. She's not even playing the game this week. She's just trying to figure out if she wants to even be in the game or what her role in the game is and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Allison's father. So quite quite a comeuppance for Otto this week. He winds up being... Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, he, he, was, he was playing the game on the edge and he, he fell off the edge, you know? Like he, he was definitely pushing his agenda and people started to figure it out and, and really blew up his spot. I guess my question to you, Mal, is when Rhaenyra is like, fine, you want me to marry Corliss's son, you got to clean up your own house then. Obviously, he's been... Viserys has been looking at Otto Askew going back at least last episode, if not more, and that comprises, you know, years of time. I think that he can look at marrying Allison as the ultimate act of his own will since he turned down, you know, marrying Corliss and uh, Renice's son... So, or daughter, so like he he is obviously like I, that was an act of free will, but maybe is now looking at that as like was that sort of orchestrated by Otto? Now he's got this gossip monger who's telling him about what his daughter is doing and having his daughter followed, and he's just like, what is going on with you? But I guess my question is, is like, do you think that he fully understood the Viserys understood the sort of machinations of Otto, or did Rhaenyra, Rhaeny- yeah, did Rhaenyra blow his mind with her? This guy's fucked up. And if you want me to do what you want me to do, you got to get him out of here. I think somewhere in between. I think that this had been a realization and a reckoning that was building over time. And the conversation with Rhaenyra was the the final straw that 
forced Viserys to act. But that's like, again, this key aspect of his character and his arc. It always comes down to the moment where he is forced to act, where he has no choice but to make a decision because of a, of a, a pitch or an appeal or a plea from somebody else. And so the fact that actually I think he this had been dawning on him definitively sooner, and it took a moment like of this tension and consequence for him to actually do something about it says a lot about their relationship. But it's in a sad way, too, because I think that Viserys, this connects to that loneliness discussion, actually has a lot of gratitude and toward, toward Otto. And he voices that here. He says, like, you taught me how to be king. He would have been utterly lost without this guy. And that's a very real thing. But it's also a real thing that Otto has manipulated and led him toward decisions for quite a long stretch of time here. So Rhaenyra's heart, not even the first person to bring this to his attention. Like, look back to episode one when Damon, Damon is saying, why this guy? Instead of me, and Viserys in that moment is saying an unwavering and, and loyal hand, and, and, and Damon says a second son who stands to inherit nothing he doesn't seize for himself. So these seeds have been planted. In episode three, Viserys starts to vocalize some of it when he pushes back on the Aegon agenda yeah. and says, you know, enough of the fucking politicking. The Aegon agenda. <laughs> the Aegon agenda. <laughs> but... I was like, whoa, like actually said out loud, whoa, when he brought up his father, Balon, the spring prince and went that far. I didn't get that. Can you guys can you guys help me out with that? What was going on there? So, you know, we didn't have time actually to really get into to bring up Balon last week. And honestly, we don't really now either, but it, it he's a very, like all members of the the Targaryen line, like they're always a shadow and a, and a looming specter in these people's lives. And Balon died after a royal hunt, which is why I, I, you know, thought we might talk about it a little bit last week. And maybe that was something that was on Viserys' mind in some capacity. But he was not initially Jaehaerys' heir. That was Rhaenys' father. Balon was the second son. And after after his older brother's death, he became the heir. Beloved by all, spring prince, Balon the brave. And just dropped dead because of his appendix exploded. Burst and belly. <laughs> burst belly. A great Georgism there. Mm-hmm. And that is when Otto moved into power, as we hear in this moment. And the way that Viserys was looking that far back into that depth of history, Jaehaerys's reign, not even his own, to say, when was the point where you started thinking about yourself instead of the realm instead of me? And like, to your point earlier, Chris, about how Otto is trying to work Viserys, like what's the most effective way to control somebody? It's not to constantly make them do things they don't want to do. It's to make them think they do want to do the thing. And that's why I think hearing Viserys talk about Alicent here was so damning, much more so than everything with Rhaenyra, honestly, because he's saying this was the thing, the only thing that pulled me out of my grief. And for that to have had some sort of ulterior sinister motive is like a devastating thing to have to confront. What do you think Viserys' first uh, clue that maybe Allison wasn't in love with him? Was it when he, like, tried to force her to look at him while they're having sex and she gives him <laughs> a fake a fake smile and then, like, turns <sighs> away from him again? Was it that? Uh, That's such a weird, like, vibe where he's just like, I'm here with all my, like, leprosy nurses getting bathed. God. And then Allison's like, I got it. You know, like, this doesn't... This Drinking like a group wine activity. in the tub. Like, he's constantly... Come on, who among Constantly us? Constantly guzzling the booze. Do you know what the best feeling in the whole world is, Mallory? Joe's like, 
I love a glass of wine yeah, in the tub. Wine drink in the tub so is I, so no really judgment. Good. This is not about wine in the tub. It's about Viserys. <laughs> the best feeling in the whole world is the Bull Durham. It's the hot shower, ice cold beer at the same oh, time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. get like a champagne of beers in the shower. Oh he brought, my God. He brought Costner into it. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> This, now I'm thinking this, about Crash Davis and won't be able to concentrate on anything else. Now I'm thinking about Costner ironing in his boxers. Thanks, Chris. The thing with the thing with Viser- the Viserys firing auto scene. Part of it is like I feel like he's building up his file for HR. He's like, this is this yeah. is why I had to let this guy go. Here are all the uh, previous offenses <laughs> documented. But it's also very classic Viserys to try to please everyone and please no one at the same time. Like he's trying to please Rhaenyra here by getting rid of Otto, but also telling Otto, uh, but also telling Otto, you were good in these ways, but also bad in these ways. And Rhaenyra, okay, I'll do what you want here, but now you got to marry Lenore, like all this sort of stuff. That's the half measure, the the shitty two two stabs to kill the uh, stag move from Viserys. I, I really think. love, like, you know, it's Aegon the Conqueror, the Mad King, Viserys the people pleaser. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, he's just like, He's just a guy who just can't help but help. It's a it's a better moniker than, you know, maggot fingers or whatever other names he might earn. I Joe, I'm glad you mentioned the the stag and the the double thrust and the hunt there because like that whole that show, that play acting, were you guys struck? I was so struck by first of all, how many of the scenes between Viserys and Damon have taken place in the throne room? Like Going back to the premiere, right? It's yeah. so interesting to me that every time Viserys faces his brother in some sort of tense moment, he needs to be standing in a hall surrounded by statues of Targaryen kings, the Iron Throne looming behind him to remind Damon, but the also crown honestly on. himself, yes, that he is the one in charge. And you mentioned the crown, Joe. So he receives, Damon comes in and he's looking great. He's got the fresh cut. He's got his driftwood crown on. He's holding, he's in his armor. He's holding the crown. Do you think he got that on Etsy? Like, where did that crown come from? (laughs) Oh no, they totally gave me this. Uh, This is just like a gift. All the people in the Stepstones, they were like coming up to me, tears in their eyes. (laughs) Corliss, Corliss crowns him in fire and blood. Notable. Yeah. But, we have we see Damon coming in, just looking like he's flying in on his dragon, amazing. Coming in, having th- defeated his enemy, seasoned in battle. We hear elsewhere in this episode, Viserys, who's nostalgic, talking back to their mother, saying like, "I wasn't the warrior. I wasn't the one who could do these things." And Viserys has to receive these decorative adornments. He receives his crown. He receives Blackfire. We are coming off an episode where we see Damon wield Dark Sister, the other ancestral Valerian steel sword of House Targaryen, and cut through legions of foes with, frankly, ease. Viserys is using Blackfire as a walking stick. It's a walking stick. It's, yeah. You pointed this out a couple this episodes is ago, Mallory, that he was like leaning on it, but this, this episode, he was it was just like... Oh, it's a cane. It's a cane for him. This this ancestral sword. It's it's a it's a tough move. You know, you mentioned it like where those where those conversations always take place. I don't think I've ever seen Damon the least bit afraid of Viserys. I don't even think when Viserys has that dagger to his throat, he's like, "You're not going to do this." And it, he is suggesting some truly, you know, earth shaking shit. Where he's just like, "I'm. You should marry her off to me." You know, like, and he's just like, "I'll fucking kill you." And Damon's just like, no, you're not. 
I don't know why. I don't know what the hold is that he has over him or whether he just thinks that Viserys is just ultimately like weak sauce, but it is kind of notable. At least, maybe it's Matt Smith's performance. He never seems the least bit shaken by Viserys. Yeah, he was flat out on the floor and seemed way more Incredible. in control of that situation than the king. Yeah, for sure. Uh, who becomes hand? And is it hard? I, I would just imagine like when you fire your hand, there's just a lot of like, you're very politically vulnerable. So is is Corliss a logical, like if we're going to you truly unite the House Valerian with House Targaryen, Corliss should get this job. Obviously, my personal pick would be Lionel uh, mm. Strong. But where does where does he go next, Joe? I don't think... How do I answer that, Chris? Oh, because you do know? <laughs> yeah, aren't I not supposed to answer that? I guess I'm sorry, I, I, got, I keep forgetting. <laughs> I do think we can safely say the show has to this point set up no sensible alternative other than Lionel Strong. That's the only actual choice that Viserys has to make. Whether he makes that choice is another matter. Corliss, we're on step one of working to bridge that divide with the rhaenyra Lenor marriage pact, but Corliss is multiple years deep into giving Viserys two very public seahorse-shaped middle fingers. Tylan Lannister arrived like very recently. Melos is basically like their maggot and tea like Instacart guy. That's not gonna happen. And Beesberry is only there as like a sound a soundbite guy, you know? Not a Tyler lot of Lannister. I don't know. Like um the can I just talk about Maester Mellos and the Moon Tea for a second? Yeah, please. I, I Mo- completely understand. Is that what we call it? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. what it's called in, in George R. Martin. I completely understand that we're trying to keep the circle of confidence tight, right? Real small, small circle here. I just still would not have sent an 80-year-old man no. to give my daughter some moon tea. It's not what I would have done. It was I I, I completely agree with you. Uh I have a, a like to, we're, we you know we can wrap up soon, but I had a question. This, this is sort of an odd scene. Masaria. So, I guess moved out of Dragonstone, right? So here's my take on what's going on here. Uh I think she hasn't seen Damon since she walked out of that scene in Dragonstone. And I think she's back at King's Landing. I think there's an implication that she owns property. She tells him to pay for the room on the way out. The first thing you should do once you get a little bit of money. Yeah, invest in in the Street of Silk and get get some property. She's also turned herself into something of a spy master, which is really fun because you mentioned the little bird. What's the the chain when he when the when that kid shows up at the palace, the they say it's a message from the white worm. The white worm is one of Masaria's names in the book. Lady Misery is another oh. fun one. And then later we see that kid come in when she's with Damon and give her some money. Yeah. So she's the one who sent the little bird to Otto. Did she do that? to fuck with Damon because she's pissed at him at what happened with Dragonstone or some other thing or just to earn some money because she doesn't care. Like, I don't know exactly what her motivation was, but she's back in town. She's no longer a sex worker. She's now some kind of spy master, right? And she's been doing this for some time because one of the things that Otto says to Viserys is, as your hand, I must maintain trusted sources of information. And this person's never steered me wrong. never led me astray. So... Masaria and her little birds have been feeding Otto reliable intel for some time now. I have one more, like, kind of, like, help me out here question. I obviously am familiar with Bravos in uh, the, the the main show. Oysters, uh, clams, and cockles. But marrying 
into the Bravos family or whatever. Like they they are st- they are the big bank of this world as much as they are in the future. Like right, the Iron Bank of Bravos. Like that's that's already a thing that they have money there. There's been a long history with Targaryens sort of having difficulty with Bravos because the Bravosi, the Free Cities, hate. The Targaryens and hate because they come from Valyria, so they right. hate the Targaryens. I don't know that they would necessarily like the Valarians that much better necessarily because they're also an old Valyria family, but at least they don't have dragons, I suppose. But yeah, it's, this is a big. This has been a tricky. Now they do. Dip- <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I, this would be like a tricky diplomatic uh, relationship between like a detente between Bravos and the Targaryens. So if if Corlys gets Bravos on his team. That's just a major unbalancing of the scales in terms of these families, for sure. Right. Okay. Well, any other closing notes that you wanted to drop on this episode? I know, obviously, you'll go really deep on this on House of R on Tuesday. Mallory, Mallory, did you do any research for where do X hands go, aside from being beheaded? Where do whores go? Where do do X hands go? (laughs) You know, yeah, I actually was thinking about that since Chris had uh, expressed an interest in in chatting about that. Well, I was just like wondering, like, is he just hanging around? Because his daughter's still the queen. So does he like, is he exiled or does he get Royal father-in-law? Yeah, There's some options, right? Like Tywin just went back to Casterly Rock. He was the Mad King's hand, right? And then... Jamie Lannister gets appointed the King's Guard, and Tywin's like, oh, "Fine, I'll go back to my beautiful estate, and I don't know, plot your downfall, I guess." Um, Brynn Rivers is a hand that was sent to the Wall. That's yeah. that's something that happened to a hand of the King. I was thinking Ro- about Roger, our guy Lord Roger Baratheon, a lot because he that's like pretty recent Targaryen history since that happened mm-hmm. early, admittedly, in, in mm-hmm. Jaehaerys's reign, but still like a hand who. A hand who overplayed his hand made way too risky of a push. And Chris, actually, you'll love this because this connects to incest and Targaryens like him to fuck each other. Full circle, baby. Jaehaerys and his his sister, the good Queen Alysanne, they were brother and sister who really wanted to marry each other no matter what other people told them. That's actually what led to the doctrine of exceptionalism, which you've heard us talk about before. This like this actual writing into law of the idea that, yes, correct, incest is bad, the faith of the seven prohibits it, except we're except. different, we're the Targaryens, so we can fuck each other all we want. <laughs> Back off. And Lord Roger, who married Jaehaerys's mother, was not in favor of this match and thought it would lead to the realm rebelling against them and citing the rage of the faith again and ended up going through all sorts of plots and schemes, schemes and plots, our fave, our fave there, and ultimately was removed as hand. But Jaehaerys, who, as we've noted before, was, was named the conciliator and gave a lot of grace and second chances to people, eventually welcomed him back into the fold. But with multiple conditions and a really dope let me walk you by my dragon in the courtyard (laughs) to remind you that I have this and that you shouldn't fuck with me again so it's possible to maintain some sort of relationship but it's also very possible that you end up like Ned beheaded or you end up like Lucas Haraway the uh, hand of Magor the Cruel beheaded because Magor thought that he so was really working against It really seems like him. it's one of two options. You get beheaded. <laughs> or, or you, you, go, you go chill for a bit yeah, and then you, you find your way involved Ryan, in political plots in the future. Ryan, the Ryan Redwine who started this season of television as yes. the Lord Commander 
was a notoriously shitty hand of the king. Couldn't and last was, a year. Didn't make it a year. <laughs> and then got eaten by crustaceans on and the so, beach. Yeah. <laughs> so they just put him then he got back the king, on the king's yeah, guard. Lord commander, Lord of, the commander of the king's guard. Um, Great work if you can get it. W- one last thing before we go on this note, and I just want to say, re-watching this episode, there's, it's like feast for the eyes. <laughs> there's a lot going on. But yeah. actually my favorite shot um, and maybe performance um, is from Reese Fons's Otto Hightower right before he goes into Viserys to tell him this. It's a slightly overhead shot of him, yeah. and it's just him weighing like, what is this the move? Yeah. Is this the move? What's the move here? And the look on his face when he gets fired, and he's like, that wasn't that was, the move. <laughs> <I> chose <laughs> like, poorly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really love that. I chose uh, the wrong. I, the only other thing I was going to say is just the, the Bracken-Blackwood dispute. For for book readers, great to see on the screen. What a treat! I, it's interesting. I mean, like that—that that was the original. That was the kid and the other guy. Yeah, yeah. Really fun. Well, those guys worked out their differences. Those houses uh, hate each other. We were produced by Steve Allman today, uh, as always, and it was wonderful to talk to the two of you, Joanna and Mallory. You can hear them on Tuesday on House of R, uh, doing a deep dive. Just hide, hide your kids for that one. <laughs> or don't, because apparently uh, there are no rules. Uh, you can listen to The Watch on Sunday nights as well. And we'll be back next week with episode five. It's a great chat with you. Bye.